0: Twenty-three days ago, at 9.30 in the morning, in Newtown, Connecticut, Adam Lanza committed an act of horrific violence. There is no magic answer to the questions we should ask about that. But there are parts of Scripture that help us get down inside of these questions and at least see them from a point of view that is helpful. And this is something that we really must do. We must ask the difficult questions. You see, if we don't ask questions about that, we are condemning ourselves to a shallow shoulder-shrugging, platitude-based faith. And when we refuse the deep questions, inevitably we refuse the heights. You see, when we look at Sandy Hook Elementary School through the lens of this morning's gospel reading, when we look at the evil at Sandy Hook through the lens of Matthew 2, we can see a deep wisdom... That Christianity offers our country. A deep wisdom that Christianity offers Newtown. In Matthew chapter 2. We see that the Christian tradition contains a realism about suffering that is shocking. And it's a realism that is right at the heart of the Christmas story. Even though in our culture. When it comes to Christmas, all the sentimental side of faith tends to take the cultural center stage. But the Christmas story isn't just about the manger and the shepherds and the baby Jesus. We see this morning that there's more. There's the powerful but deeply corrupt old King Herod. Here he is in the middle of the Christmas story. Defending his throne against yet another potential usurper. And he doesn't care if he has to destroy several dozen little boys in the process. But before we're shocked by the explosive rage and the slaughtered innocence of Bethlehem. Before we get to that point in the story. We must see. That Herod had a choice. When he heard the Magi's strange question in verse 2. Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? What did Herod do? He summoned the clergy. He summoned the theologians. He inquired where the Christ was to be born in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5 and 6. They read him the answer out of scripture. And in that moment. Herod had a choice. I mean, think about what's going on there. When the scriptures are read to Herod, it is just like when the scriptures were read to you this morning. It is the grace of God reaching out to Herod. It is the grace of God coming to Herod. And in that moment, just like with you and me this morning, Herod was hearing God's invitation. In that moment, just like with you and me, Herod was receiving an engraved invitation to the party. For all of his years of selfishness. For all of the murders he's already committed. He has already killed his mother. He's already killed a wife. He's already killed brothers. For all of the violence of Herod. For all of his greed and his abuse, Herod's sin is not so deep that God's grace cannot reach beneath it. But he resists God. And you can see his resistance, not only in active ways, you see it in passive ways. You can resist God just as strongly in your passivity as you can in your aggression. Think about his laziness. All he had to do was make a two or three hour trip. And he could have checked it out for himself. But he didn't. You can see his resistance on a more aggressive level in the hypocrisy and the deception of this committee that he gets together and the questions he asks. The Magi, you can finally see his resistance to God's grace in his aggressive and brutal murder murder in cold blood of those little boys that lived in a small town. Here is an ugly truth that Christianity assists upon and places right at the heart of the Christmas story. It's that Herod reveals the pathology of your heart and my heart. Herod, Matthew, the author of this gospel, is insisting, Herod is me and Herod is you. Herod is what we are deep inside. He is not an anomaly. Herod lives in each of us. The Christ, this is a Christian claim. It is the claim that our basic human nature is bent towards self. And in being bent towards self, it is bent away from others and the living God. So when we look at our world and ourselves through the lens of Scripture, we see the hard truth that inside each of us is a pervasive brokenness. Now, what I'm talking about has a formal name in Christian theology. It's the doctrine of original sin. It's that no one, not even a Christian, has sufficient strength to overcome the snares of the devil. See, the great danger with Matthew 2 is that you look at Matthew 2 and you see Herod as the other. And you try to align, isn't this our human nature to align ourselves with the good cats in a story? And to think that the bad guys live in New England or in palaces. But this idea is that each of us is broken and we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to vanquish the lust of the flesh unless we get help from God. Christianity insists that human nature is enslaved and held prisoner by the devil who deceives us, it, he deceives us not only in having bad actions, but in having wicked opinions and wicked beliefs and flawed views of this world. Look what we humans do in Matthew's Gospel. At the beginning, the slaughter of the innocents. In the middle, the slaughter of the innocent John the Baptist. At the end, the slaughter of the innocent Messiah. All committed by humans. And let me ask you, is it even possible to adopt a different point of view? Let's just look at our own recent history. Let's just look at the age of enlightenment. When Leopold, king of the Belgians, Killed half of the population of the Congo. 10 million out of 20 million people. He killed them in order to line his own pockets. And what about the southern Sudanese? Over the past 40 years, they have lost 50% of their population. And the death toll is still racking up. And then there's Lebanon. Lebanon, over a six week period in the summer of 1982, they lost 17,500 citizens to Sharon's army. And remember, Lebanon is a small country. A proportionate death toll in America would be that in a few weeks, two million people die. And what about our relative inattention in the West to the HIV and AIDS pandemic in Africa? Some would say this is a genocide in its own right. The 20th century alone has had at least six major genocides. The Armenians by the Turks. The Jews and Gypsies by Hitler, the Cambodians by the Khmer Rouge, the Kurds by Saddam Hussein, the Tutsis by the Hutus, the Croats and Muslims and Albanians by the Serbs. And that doesn't even get into the Gulag and Hamburg and Dresden and Coventry and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The slaughter of the innocents continues. In 1481, Leonardo da Vinci began a painting for the Augustinian monks of San Donato Ascapateto in Florence. The painting, it's about Matthew 2. It's called The Adoration of the Magi. He didn't finish it because he ended up getting a promotion to Milan and he just walked off. (laughs) But he finished enough. In the foreground, you see Jesus surrounded by Mary and the Magi. And in the background, a ravaged world, ruined buildings, fighting, war. Da Vinci is saying, this is the world into which the child was born. This is Matthew 2. God enters a world that is no longer a garden, it's in the words of T.S. Eliot, a howling wasteland. And God comes in the midst of evil, in the midst of death. And here's the point of Herod. When you, When I resist God in the flesh, when we resist Jesus Christ. The violence and the agony and the death does not stop. The story of the Bible is insisting on this point. When we resist the one and true Lord of the universe, then the innocent around us will suffer from us. Herod is every man. For Matthew, the point is that Herod is in us. Herod is a warning. Here we see the dark side of our nature, a side that all of us have. The hard and brutal reality that the Christian tradition insists upon is Herod is who we are. But that's only one dimension of the human according to the Bible. There's another dimension. We see this when we look at the Magi. Now, we've been ruined. We can't see this part of the Magi because we're so accustomed to thinking of them in positive terms. But Matthew, the person writing this biography of Jesus and all of his original audience, they would have understood the Magi as the bad guys in the story. See, we're so accustomed to seeing Herod as the bad guy and the Magi as the good guys. Originally, it was the opposite. Herod was a Jew and the Magi were Gentiles. The whole culture had raised them to see the Jews as the good people and the Gentiles as the bad people. And not only that, every other time magic or astrology or mentioned in the Bible, this is what the Magi did, every other time it is soundly condemned. Every other time, it's a bad guy. It's terrible. It is a deep and fundamental violation of the second commandment. Looking to creation to give something that only the creator can give. It's idolatry. And if you miss this, if you start out by translating the magi the way my Bible translated as the wise men, then you, you cut the nerve out of the whole point of what's going on here. They were magicians, they were astrologers, they were idolaters, they were far from God. And if you miss this, then you miss the fact that what the Magi are teaching us is that God's grace can summon us no matter how far we are from God. If you don't realize that the Magi are really bad dudes, If you don't realize this, you are in danger of foisting upon the Bible your own narrative, your own view. This deeply flawed false gospel. The false gospel I'm talking about, it's insidious. It's everywhere you turn. Recently, I was reminded of it in one of my favorite movies, The Lord of the Rings. And now the um, current installment, The Hobbit. In the book and in the film, The Lord of the Rings, the climax of the whole epic is when Frodo heroically carries the ring to the one spot where it can be destroyed. And in that moment, when Frodo can save all of Middle Earth instead of destroying the ring... He claims it. And then suddenly, Gollum attacks and bites off his finger, which is never very fun. Now, in the book, here's what follows. Quote, But Gollum, dancing around like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. And with that, Even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far. He wavered for a moment on the brink. And then with a shriek he fell, out of the depths came his last wail, precious. And he was gone. That's the book. The movie changes it. In the movie, after Gollum bites off his finger, Frodo heroically launches himself at Gollum and hurls them both over the side and Gollum falls with the ring into the lava but Frodo is barely saved by Sam. Obviously, the movie version is more exciting. But it is operating from a fundamentally different worldview. It has stripped the book of its moral and religious scaffolding You see, in the book, Frodo failed. The author of the book, his name is J.R.R. Tolkien, he frequently wrote about this moment. He said it is the moment of the whole thing he ever wrote. It is the crux of everything. It's the fulcrum, Tolkien said, on which the whole story turns. We've got numerous letters that he wrote to friends talking about this moment. Here's a quote from one of them. Frodo failed. But one must face the fact. The power of evil in the world is not finally resistible by incarnate creatures, however good they are. But the mo- but the writer of the story is not one of us. Frodo, you see, is not a hero. He's a failed frail Creature, And he is saved by an act of grace. And this is the fulcrum of the entire story. But the movie version, still a great movie. It's just different. It's a different story. It's a different worldview. And this difference is what we see in the Magi. They too are Herod. And it is God's grace that saves them. So Herod is a warning to us. And the Magi are a great encouragement. When we come to Christ in faith, when we worship Him in our hearts, it is because of God's grace. God's grace put a star in the universe to get them, to fetch them. And then when they got They finally got there. They still couldn't find him. So God's grace came out of Scripture and named the town. God's grace at the first. God's grace in the middle. God's grace at the end. They're all about God. They are Herod. And they've received the grace of God. It's the Magi who show us what can happen to us if we open our hearts to the grace of God. The Magi show us what we can become. Now that's a two-dimensional view of humans. Herod, and the Magi. But there's a third dimension. And we get the third dimension when we look in the manger. In Matthew chapter 2, it's interesting. Jesus is too young to act. In fact, in this story, every time Jesus has action, it's only Him being acted upon. He's just a baby. By the end of the chapter, the focus has passed from the Magi, through Herod, to Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus is a helpless babe who is a fugitive and a refugee. He's wanted by the government, and so he's on the run. And if you pay close attention to Matthew's literary artistry, you'll see that by the end of the chapter... All of the key facts surrounding Jesus are geographical. Egypt, Bethlehem, Israel, Judea, Galilee, Nazareth. Why is Matthew's focus on Jesus' route that he's being taken on? Well, you only know the answer to that question if you've immersed yourself in Scripture and you recognize... That Jesus' geographic journey, which is all Matthew tells us about when it comes to Jesus. It is the journey ancient Israel followed exactly. Think about this. After Jesus' miraculous birth to a dreamer named Joseph, his life is threatened by a child-slaying king. And he has to escape by night to safety. So Jesus escapes from the promised land in Israel to Egypt, just like all the patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph had done. Then like Moses, Jesus is called up out of Egypt and returns again to the land of promise. Here's the key. By means of geography, Matthew, the author of this gospel, is making a, a dogmatic, a doctrinal, an ideological point. He is saying, look at Jesus He is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. Now, if we were to keep reading Matthew's gospel, we would see that Jesus continues to follow the history of Israel to a T. In the next chapter, guess what Jesus does? He crosses the water. And after he crosses the water, just like Israel, he's immediately tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel crossed the Red Sea and landed in the wilderness where they were tempted for 40 years. And get this. Each of Jesus' temptations is an exact replica of the temptations Israel faced in the wilderness. And even more, they occur in the exact same order. The only difference is the key difference. Jesus does not give in to the temptations. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. So Jesus is not only the new Israel... He is the faithful Israel. He obeys where Israel disobeyed. He fulfills the original purpose for Israel and for humanity. Here's the point when all of humanity failed, God recruited Israel to be the way of salvation for humanity. When Israel failed, Jesus of Nazareth, the true Israelite, succeeded. So, when Jesus died on the cross, he was not only dying as one of us, he was our representative. It was as our substitute that Jesus received the wrath of God on the cross. This is the point. Now, you don't have to believe it, but it is the point Matthew is making. When Matthew brings up the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, he is insisting that you forecast, and you look ahead to the slaughter of John the Baptist, but ultimately to the slaughter of the greatest innocent, Christ himself. He is insisting that you connect the manger and the cross. He is insisting that you see Jesus not just as a human, but as a substitute for all humans. So the full story about human nature is not told when we learn that God can have mercy on us like he did with the Magi, or that God can exercise judgment on us like he did with Herod. The Old Testament tells those two truths over and over and over. The great new fact about human nature, it, it, it comes crystal clear in Jesus, is that humanity has a representative before God who does what Israel was supposed to do. That Jesus is the true human. He is the son of man for for which all of history has been waiting. In Matthew chapter 1, the point is that Jesus shows us who God really is. That's the point of Matthew 1. In Matthew 2, we look at Jesus and we see what a true human really is. In fact, Jesus is called by his name. Jesus only once in Matthew chapter 2. It's in the first verse. And do you know what? After that, one name, one name given to Jesus dominates all the titles given to Jesus. In fact, it's used more than all the other titles given to Jesus in Matthew 2 put together. Nine times Jesus is called the child. Matthew is saying, the human. So the last word about human nature is not that the Magi are showing us we are lost by nature. It is not what Herod is showing us that we are lost by choice. The last word about human nature is Jesus Christ. God himself has come in the flesh and he has lived the human life as our representative and as our substitute. In the Magi and in Herod, we see our need. In Christ, we see our provision. These two themes together, this is the gospel. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and humanity's deep need for that grace. Sin and grace. Need and salvation. Your problem and God's solution. When either of these is insufficiently emphasized You lose the other. See if you don't really believe the problem with Newtown. Is your problem too. then you can't really understand who Jesus was. We must appreciate the Magi and Herod in us. If we can ever see Christ for us. So let's end where we began. When we look at Sandy Hook Elementary School through the lens of Matthew chapter 2, and you better, you should, not, you should not get in the habit of reading stories like this and disconnecting them from the world you live in. That is a danger habit to, dangerous habit to get in. When we read Matthew 2 through the lens of our experience, we see the deep wisdom that Christianity offers. We see that God is at work to bring about a new creation. To establish victory over evil. To make a new world out of the sad old world. But we also see that he doesn't wave a magic wand. This world is not like a child that has bumped her knee and needs a kiss from mommy to be okay. Evil is not like that. And the gospel is not like that. And so you have a choice. What will it be for you? Just like Herod, you have a choice. Have you accepted the grace of God? This morning you've heard his word read. You've heard his word preached. You're, you're going to hear it sung. This morning God is inviting you into the party. Have you accepted in faith the harsh reality of your own fundamental brokenness? Do you have faith that Christ is your representative? That when he went to the cross, he was not just God on the cross. He was your substitute. Do you believe that? Children, do you believe that? If you do. If you really believe that Jesus Jesus is the judge who was judged for you if you believe that if you turn to him in faith believing that he is God he is a human substitute if you do then you will not face the wrath of God and in you the new creation can begin And if you do believe that, then you can experience my favorite part of Matthew chapter 2. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If you believe that, you can go another way. You see, all through the Bible, Christianity is called the way. And if you would have faith in Christ, you can be a part of that new way. Let's pray.